0: Hello, welcome to this episode of Ten Thousand Posts, the show about how everything is posting. My name
1: is Hussein. My name is Phoebe.
0: And this week we are joined uh, to do our series on posters of history by uh, Murtaza Hussein. Murtaza is a journalist at The Intercept. He's also a political commentator. Um, you may have like read or seen his work like quite a lot, uh, especially if you're sort of yeah, I, I, especially if you're interested in like issues to do with like secure national security and stuff like that. Murtaza, I, I don't know whether I accurately de- accurately describe the work you're doing but first of all welcome to the show um how are you doing and like yeah how how would you describe the work that you generally do on a day-to-day basis
2: yeah well thank thank you guys for having me on the show um yeah i think what you said generally is fine yeah we're I'm a reporter for the intercept mostly writing about national security and politics and things like that but also i have a substack and i'm on social media and commenting on cultural issues which are inextricably mixed up all together with it so Mm. Yeah, you can find my work uh, on The Intercept or if you just find me on social media and then you'll get a gist of what I talk yeah. about or what I know about.
0: All the links to most of that stuff will be in the show notes. Do follow those um, and we'll give a little reminder of that at the end of the episode. But this week, uh, we are doing posters of history. It's a series where we look back on uh, particular historical figures um, through the through like various lenses to sort of figure out, first of all, whether they could or could not be classified as posters. But in this instance, um the, the the person we're sort of talking about today, uh, has all, has been of interest to me, uh, in particular, partly because of like my own religious background. So also just because, um, as doing the type of reporting that I did on religious affairs, uh, let's just say that like lots of, uh, his references kind of kept coming up in very weird contexts and the most recent context of that. And like the re- like the sort of formulation of his show came from, uh, something that happened to me last year when I was just on Etsy and I discovered that like, there's this whole sort of Etsy um, kind of shopping circle that is dedicated to um, very strange translations of Rumi quotes and the ways in which they are then mass produced onto like mugs, t-shirts uh big frames that you would probably only see if in like a very generic and overpriced Airbnb. Um, there's this whole sort of like economy of roomy fake roomy quotes that I think has sort of existed online for a very, very long time. Um, or, and to the extent where, despite the fact that there is a lot of evidence to like kind of reiterating, but like these fakes are either outright fabrications or they are at the very like least like extremely bad translations. And we'll get into like how that sort of came to be later in the episode. Um, they still kind of persist. And the most recent kind of time that I saw that was actually like a couple of days ago browsing through TikTok when uh some influencer, some like um yoga influencer who I had initially sort of seen videos uh with recipes started to sort of use Rumi quotes to uh incorporate Rumi quotes into her meditation um rituals. No comment on that, but it does sort of go to show like how kind of persistent this has been. Um and I thought Murtze, you would be like a really good person to talk to about this. Mainly like Partly because I think we sort of share like a similar sort of religious background and sort of interaction with like the online world, but also because I think that you will have also pointed out just like the sort of real perpetuation of these fake Rumi quotes online before. Um, have you seen these at all? Like, you know, what what is your relationship to uh, like the strange kind of phenomenon of Rumi quotes for lack of a better term?
2: Yeah, I have definitely seen those quotes. So Rumi is kind of really important to me in a way because uh you know, I really derive a lot of meaning from the actual, the real poems and uh, the real books that he wrote and so forth. I actually taught myself to read pretty good Persian just so I can kind of appreciate, mm. you know, he's still very difficult to read in Persian. But, you know, with some guidance, you can read it. And it's truly powerful. And obviously, Rumi was, you know, he was a very like religiously conservative man who lived like almost a millennia ago. Uh, he was a Islamic expert in Islamic law, which he called Sharia law at the time. And he was also a poet and he'd also, you know, was famous for these uh, divans, these collections of poetry that he wrote, which are still read to this day in many parts of the world. And it used to form a very important part of people's education. And that's how they would learn about their religion, not from reading direct primary sources usually, but from secondary sources like poetry of Rumi and other places. Mm-hmm. So he was very important to the self-conception of Muslim people for a long time. although. I think that's changed in more recent years and modernization and so forth. So, you know, I've seen these quotes online, uh, these English language quotes. And the thing is, Rumi wrote such a tremendous amount that it's kind of hard to know every single, to know right away something's real or not. Yeah, maybe he wrote that. I don't know. He's written like innumerable poetry and uh, and so forth. But it's interesting, the thing with uh, Rumi's poetry is that and poetry of this type, you could say it's Sufi poetry or for lack of a better term, it has an exoteric meaning, like a apparent meaning, and it should have like a inner meaning. It should have like a spiritual meaning, which if you're doing the spiritual practices that the works are supposed to reference, which are not explicitly written in every poem, you should understand both the exoteric and the esoteric. That was kind of the whole idea behind mm. these types of poems. So it's interesting, these quotes... When you see them and, you know, I don't have one on top of my mind right now, but I've seen many of them, they're very just exoteric. They're like, you know, about being a good person or loving the person next to you and so forth. And that's okay and that's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's really kind of missing something of the very important, the illusions and the uh, the meaning that you should really get when you're reading the direct ruby quotes. So, it's very fascinating, and I think that it's interesting that he became so popular, including in the Anglophone world, but people because actually his message is so deeply foreign and not foreign in the sense to you know people can't understand it, just foreign in the sense that it's very different from the type of things which are marketable or popular today and to the average person. it seems like people have to put their own twist on it and go even beyond that, like really just make up their own ones and attribute it to them because. You know, obviously, he's a very beautiful poet and evocative in in those ways, just stylistically. But, you know, people won't seem to want that. But, you know, to actually understand Rumi, you have to do, like, a lot of work on yourself. And you have to do all these practices. Mm. And then you can understand it. Mm. You know, maybe. Uh, It's not something you can put on the wall in the Airbnb, as you said, and, you know, kind of get the gist of it. And to make it like that, you'd have to, you know, effectively construct your own Rumi, which people have actually done and are still doing right now.
1: Mm. I found a really good example of what you're of what you're talking about, of a kind of very general English quote, which is on an on an Instagram account which collects quotes all out of context from various uh, from various figures in Stoicism, <laughs> which is called uh, which is called Stoic Army. So, <laughs> so, make, so make of that make of that what you will. And the the Rumi, the roomy Rumi quote selected by Stoic Army is uh, the closer I get. The more I see how far I am, which I'm sure you'll agree is 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 so general that it ha- that it may as well have been said by, you know, said it's, by anyone. It's not
2: a bad. It's not a bad quote in its own. So it's I would give yeah. it like a B plus. But uh, you know, and you know, honestly, I could read some roomy type of meaning into that. There could be like some meaning, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it means in the context of this and. You know, he may have said that. It sounds like he might have said, but I guess he didn't. So it's in this kind of gray nebulous zone. And, you know, it's interesting. Like there was a very interesting article by my friend, uh, Rosina Ali, a few years ago in the New York, the New Yorker about the, she called it like the, the removal of Islam from Rumi or like the detachment of these two things. So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people, there was this very big movement in the last couple of decades to popularize Rumi in the Anglophone world. And it had very good intentions in the sense that people liked these poems and they wanted to, you know, bring them the benefit of them and the enjoyment of them to American or British audience. So there were these guys like Coleman Brooks and others who, you know, were translating them or, you know, you know, trying to create a version of them in English. And the thing is, when you read Rumi in Persian translating it to English is not a very straightforward task because it's very different. You kind of have to give the gist of it. You have to not transliterate. You have to try to give an interpretation of it, write a new meaning. And you have to be quite a skilled poet yourself to convey the meaning in a different language anyways, because you have to kind of make up words which don't exist or don't have correlates in English or Mm. wouldn't make sense. So, a lot of skill is involved in that. And there are some people who are very good at it. And in other contexts, there's a guy named Dick Davis who did a translation of a very amazing book called The Conference of the Birds, which is also a very long Sufi poem. And he did an incredible job making it. And he used really beautiful English and he turned it into an amazing English poem. And I think he did; he aimed to conserve the philosophy behind it because that was also important to him. So, this, you know, modern translation movement of Rumi, it seems to have prioritized conveying the aesthetic meaning of it, Unless so the philosophy, as Rosina seemed to write in her New Yorker article about it. And, you know, it created this huge, huge number of, you know, I guess you can say fake Rumi quotes. I would say they're not all fake in the sense that Mm. they are made of whole cloth. But, you know, ones which are not really written by Rumi. They're like some guy's interpretation of what he thinks Rumi said or meant. And yeah. oftentimes quite superficial. And I think that's incentivized more people to make their own riffs on, you know, what Rumi may have said or may have thought. So, the stoic uh, poem, which, you know, or the saying I think it's fine. I think it was actually fine. I could derive some meaning from that. I could think so. But, you know, yeah. it's not the same as reading Rumi because, you know, Rumi would have not, I think, phrased it the exact same way. And he would have meant something maybe different. I don't know what the stoic person really means exactly. Like you said, it was very vague, Phoebe. It could have meant mm. many mm. different things. Uh, And, you know, Rumi's poetry also can mean very different things, but it's not always that vague, actually. His his poems are sort of like, if you kind of get the whole gist of where he's coming from, you can't tell what he means, what he doesn't mean. That's why there's a famous, uh, you know, Rumi meme where it's, you know, a photo, sorry, a drawing of Rumi. And the quote is, my poems are not about your girlfriend. And, you know, when you read his poems, you can tell they're actually not really about, you know, his his girlfriend or his... uh, significant Mm. other they're about something else and yet I think the fake quotes or the concocted quotes you know they seem like they could apply very very readily to things which they would not have meant in the original context
1: Mm. Mm. I I suppose that, um, that the issue with the issue with any any account which which seeks to disseminate anything through, uh, through a, a sort of image with a very kind of short associated piece of text, is that is that inevit- is that inevitably there's uh, there's it's very context free, and if it's context free, then in it then it can lead to this this suggestion that this that that. Towards a kind of universalism, and I don't think that that's necessarily like the worst thing in the world. But I think if you, if say say if, say if, say if you completely strip Rumi of his Sufism, then you're absolutely missing something from from the work. Just like if you if you quote Epictetus out of like out of context, you quote Seneca out of context. Without the without the specific historical and social context that they were that they were writing it because like if you look at the whole of the Stoic Army Instagram account it's it's quite it's quite funny because it does collapse Stoicism as a philosophy into just, just chill don't try not to try not to don't get stressed don't get stressed and that's not re- and that's not really um, that's not really a good interpretation of what Stoicism was meant to be as a philosophy. And, and I think that, that, that part of that is a kind of failure of translation and part of that is a kind of general interest in uh, particularly kind of, a, a, sort of a, Western, a Western mindset of insisting that everything is there for the extraction. Everything is there for the taking and everything is there for the, yeah, but it's universal, but the, but the, but the context is, is such a kind of vital part of it.
2: You know, it's interesting because it is universal. It's intended to be universal. Speaking to human beings generally, not a specific uh, community of people or even a specific tradition. But it's interesting. I think it ties into this concept that we have today. People really want instant gratification of different mm. things. So instant gratification of a stoic quote or a rumi quote or something. But the underlying philosophy that produced these letters and this art and so forth it was not based on instant gratification. It was based on, you know, tremendous self cultivation and work on yourself, at, on the way towards which you can start to understand the meaning of these different cultural productions and poems and so forth. So, you know, when you see it on a wall, taken out of context, you can reflect on it and say, "Hmm, yeah, that just means something." It's interesting, and it's, you can even get some meaning out of it, which could be beneficial. But the actual, the The way it was designed was that, okay, if you undertake this very, very long process of working on yourself spiritually or whatever, uh, philosophically, then you'll understand what these mean and your understanding of it will be like a signpost that you're going the right direction. So, Mm. that was kind of the way it was. So, it is accessible to anybody. Anybody could do that and you don't even have to be a particular religion to, you know, do these practices per se or at least to a certain point, I think. But then... You know, to get it, to really get it, you have to do all the other things. You have to do all the work. So, I think it actually ties into a very broader theme of like a therapeutic culture in a consumer culture that all of us live in now, Mm. uh, whereby we want all the riches of the world's history, which technically is all available to us because you on your phone, you can read, you know, Shakespeare, a million different things in translation, uh, Confucius, every tradition in the world. Technically, you can read it. But we don't seem to get all the wisdom of it, despite having mm. all this information. It's because I think in many cases, the wisdom was not, you know, just there for the taking very easily. You can get it, but you have to do a lot of work. And like people often think of spirituality, to use the term, as, yeah, like chilling or just like taking a breath and something like that. It actually, you know, a way of relaxing, actually. But actually, it was the opposite in most traditions. Mm. It's a lot of work. It's like tens of grueling work and... Uh, you know, develop self-development, self-cultivation. That was the context in which these things were created. So it's uh, I don't know how to make it. it's like only giving the very, very superficial sort of um yeah representation of it, whereas it mm. goes a lot deeper.
0: Mm. I guess like so to sort of like take it back a little bit, and especially for people who may not understand or may not really know who Rumi is, um you know, I, I wondered whether like you had like if you if you would sort of like introduce Rumi, because I think another important concept, another important part of this story is um Sufism and just like how Sufism is sort of understood uh by Westerners, but also just in the West, even among Muslims generally, um, and what the sort of like Sufism of Rumi uh was. Because I think as you mentioned, um, you know, Rumi there is this idea of Sufism sort of being uh like what's the fact like the sort of over-spiritualized somewhat anarchic form of like islam that didn't have rules and constrictions, but the reality actually sort of is not like that isn't like the reality like suit like even though sufism is like its own branch of islamic like philo- philosophical thought it is still very much rooted in somewhat conservative Sunni tradition. So I guess, I guess like as a very simple question for people who aren't familiar with Rumi, can you sort of tell us like who he was and why he is important both in terms of being a character in Sufi history, but also uh, how he's sort of become this universalized Islamic figure um, that, is, that again has almost sort of taken on its own sort of narratives and connotations?
2: Yeah, so he lived in the 12th century. He was a Persian speaker. He lived in what now would be considered Afghanistan in modern modern conception. Uh, all that time, the borders were not obviously fixed in the same way. Uh, and, you know, he was geared, growing up in a very conservative, you could say, Islamic environment. He was an expert on what we call Sharia law. It would just be law at that time, the Islamic law, which governed the area. He was a family of jurists and so forth. So, you know, and he himself is an expert in these subjects. So, you know, he was practicing, I can't think, I'll put it this way. You know, at that time, people's understanding of what a religion was or how you practice it or what the meanings of it, it's kind of different from the way we think of it today. And I think that our understanding is very much colored by in the last century, big cultural revolutions happened, like mass literacy and, you know, communications revolution and travel and the internet and all these things, it really changed the way, a very modern way that people tend to look at religion. Now, back then, for most of history, you could say, people would not be able to read themselves. And the idea that most people would not be able to, but everyone wanted to practice religion. So, it had to be made accessible to the average person. And they looked to people who were in authority among them to help them understand what these things mean. Can give us the distilled meaning of the Quran? Because I can't read Arabic and I can, maybe I can't read anything. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people, most people, would their understanding of religion will come from secondary texts. So, to give you an example, like, live in the United States. I don't read the Constitution on a regular basis. And I don't feel I need to do that. But there is a whole institution of people, lawyers and uh, politicians and so forth, who are theoretically, their job is to create, you know, emanations of that text and act in a way which supports that text, interpret it, look at it themselves. They're experts in themselves. Uh, They can make laws which are, you know, in correspondence with it. Other people can make other, you know, productions and so forth that I can consume, which are accessible to me, which help me understand the gist of the constitution, why it matters, why it's important. So, you know, he, Rumi, when he wrote these poems, he wrote this huge collection of poetry and other other writings. He was trying to make the meaning of the Quran and his understanding of it and his interpretation as someone who was expert in a jurist in it, accessible to the common person. And, you know, they're memorizable, these poems. They have meanings which derive from certain parts of uh, the Quran, which are intended to be exemplified in the poetry, but they were made in a way which the common person could access them. And throughout most of history, that's how most people understood Their religion they actually that was a very common part of people's education was to learn the divans the collections of poetry of rumi and Mm. you know hafiz and all these other people saadi uh who were you know most of them or many of them were experts in islam and then this was considered to be a religious thing actually the most maybe the most primary understanding people get from religion so that was kind of his role he was doing that and people would also call like the Rumi's divan, like the the Persian Quran or something like that. They would use that terminology because that's how deeply tied to the idea of being religious it was. Now, today, obviously, we're very different. Most people are very different. There have been all these political changes and cultural changes and people now, you know, there's like a very Protestant attitude towards religion. Like we don't need, for Muslims at least, you don't need someone to interpret this for me. I can read myself. Why is this someone in between here? Let me just interpret it my own way. and This is what I think it means. And then there's kind of like this huge divergence of opinion and, you know, disagreement. And it's much more complicated. And I think it's hard to say if it's good or bad. It's just, just very different. Uh, and that, I think that's a that's a situation where people don't really know what to make of this anymore. Like what is Rumi to a lot of people now? Is he like an Iranian cultural relic or Afghan cultural relic? Or is he, yeah, it's just like a... You know, motivating guy who told you to chill. Was he not Muslim at all? Was he, he seems really different from what I hear if I go over to the mosque or something. Was he this guy Mm. completely something else? So that's confusion and the inability to know where to place him is a byproduct of people's general confusion and the evolution of religion throughout time. And I'm sure it's the similar correlates in other religious traditions. This is one I'm familiar with. But yeah, that's kind of how he came to not really fit in, although he was extremely important and I would say vital to. Most Muslims throughout history, him and people like him, the poetry they wrote was the integral part of people's popular understanding of religion.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm interested in what you say about um, how important it is for it to be understood by people who weren't able to engage directly with the text by reading it, because there's a there's a there's a translator who's working now uh, called um, called Eliza Khafori, who, um, who 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 trans who translates the poems into into english but also um is also a vocalist so she also arranges them into song and i think that's like a really i think that's like a really terrific way of engaging engaging with the original text as well because um because i'm assuming that they would have been sung originally they wouldn't have just been kind of read out
2: you know, there was a specific meter when I was taught how to read them. There's like a specific meter they use. Yeah, it's kind of like it's melodic, but not necessarily yeah. melodic in the way a song would be today. But melodic mm. in some kind of way. So I would say, yeah, that makes it easier to remember too once recited uh, that way, which is also mm. part of it. But yeah, there, there are a lot of nice singers today who do sing. You know, these verses or make songs. Some of them are Persian people. Some of them are English singers who sing in English, but they kind of. You know, they mix Persian and English or something like that in in the way when they sing it. But yeah, there are, that's a really good way of doing it. And that's a way of think of even maybe reviving the popularity of it or repackaging Mm. it for people. And there are people who are trying to do that. I think in response to kind of the secularization, for lack of a better term, of Rumi trying to revive the tradition in a way which is popular today, which is music. Poetry is not that popular. I like poetry, but I don't think poetry is like super popular among people. In the way it was in the past, at least mm. music, music still is.
1: Yeah. yeah. Although poetry, I feel like poetry has has had a little bit of a little bit of a revival. There are lots of oh, there are lots too. of TikTok poets. That's which is which is it's not that's not to me, that's not to me, that's not good. I know that there's a kind of there's a kind of well, as long as you're consuming the form, it doesn't matter, but
0: well it brings up an interesting point, I guess, because it's like and vi- and this is sort of when I was trying to do the research on this, I was a little bit confused, uh, and I'd love to sort of have some clarity, which is just like how a roomy poet. How how like a how a poem like the white number I don't want to say Rumi poem because again there is sort of like a chain and uh you know the like the documentations of like how like the style of wit in which like r- these poems kind of work is very varies very much like a um not a chain of narration but there are sort of like an influence it, like there are there is like a stylistic element to that, which is to say that I was struggling to sort of understand how to describe what a Rumi poem is, especially because I've only read like English translations of them. You had mentioned that you had like read them in Persian. Um, and I wondered, like having read them in both Persian and English, could you like describe what a Rumi poem, like how it is structured? Um, and I wonder, and I wonder in that element whether it there is something about the structure of that poem that kind of lends itself to then having this ulterior life as kind of viral content.
2: Yeah, so a lot of them were written as quatrains, so like you know lines of four, you could say, and you know that I think is the form in which people tend to reproduce the English versions like the one that uh, mentioned earlier, Phoebe, that it was like a short bit of Rumi. A lot of his the poems, they're really long. They're very, very long. Mm. and But they're broken up into fours and you can take a four out of there and make it into more digestible quote. And I think that's something that fits in, you know, people's what's needed today or people want today because you can put it in a mug, put it in the wall, you can Digested in one second Maybe reading epic poem in english takes a long time so that would you know it's very it's like reading a book same with persian but reading a quatrain you can read like a tweet it's like a it's a post basically you know to yeah. fit the theme <laughs> of the conversation so people want a good post from rumi and since he wrote in quatrains he has kind of these posts which are you know accessible there you know i wanted to bring something up too which is a little bit different but i think it kind of ties into the general phenomenon There is also a huge profusion of fake James Baldwin quotes. And there's like so many fake James Baldwin quotes. There's one particular quote, which I've seen so many places. I'm going to read it just because I think it kind of ties in the same thing. It says, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. If you Google this quote, you can see this graffiti on the walls, like this merchandise you can buy with this quote. This quote was never said by James Baldwin. This quote was a tweet by a Twitter user named Son of Baldwin <laughs> in 2015, but somehow got attributed to James Baldwin. Even though it doesn't sound like anything he'd actually say, really. It's kind of oh, that's, that's, quote. that's
1: perfect, isn't it? This quote <laughs> is
2: everywhere. If you Google it, you cannot see any people are holding the signs of protests with this quote. James Baldwin never said this quote. <laughs> uh, but I think it fits uh, what people want James Baldwin, the symbol to say and they want what they feel right now. James Baldwin is a very complicated thinker and is a very sophisticated thinker, but people want the aesthetics and you know the symbolism of James Baldwin, but they want it to say what they want to say. So it's interesting because you know I think that it's kind of a similar thing with Rumi because you know Rumi was very foreign, you know in many ways. Things like some things is very universal and some are very foreign. Not insuperably foreign, but you'd have to do a lot of work to meet him where he was because he was a conservative religious Islamic thinker from the 12th century. It's a big, pretty big difference. And you can still grasp that, but you have to kind of, like I said, meet him on his terms a little bit. But, you know, they want the symbolism of Rumi and they want the idea, the aesthetics of the whirling dervishes or roses or whatever they associate with him. But they don't want to meet him there, and then, then they give him these quotes, and then they're just very digestible. And same with James Baldwin. James Baldwin. If you want to read all his works, you have to deal with the very complex person and thoughts that he had. But if you can just kind of like make your own James Baldwin quote, then you know do that. And then yeah, I don't I don't find it blameworthy per se. I just think it's kind mm. of funny. It's just a sense that it's broader theme of uh, you know I don't know culture is changing so rapidly and so uh, incredibly that people mm. are making their own Spins on literature, and who knows how it's going to be interpreted another fifty years from now.
1: Mm. Yeah, but I sp- but I suppose as well is that a lot of how Rumi came into English in the first place is not is not like an entirely dissimilar process because the first uh, that the first the first translator who was an 18th century translator called William Jones. And I think this is why uh, my initial feeling about it was that it was a kind of, not 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 a theft exactly, but very much a kind of outpost of colonial thought. Like you sort of show up in a country and it's like, okay, well, this can be ours too. Why not? Why not? Um, and I think that, uh, that universalism and an attempt to, be as resonant as possible with like kind of all pe- all sort all people from all historical contexts and all backgrounds is 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 quite laudable from a kind of artistic point of view but if you're using if you're using universalism as a as a kind of cloak for extractivism i think that's like i think that's like a little bit i think that's a little bit of a di- like a different thing and uh this translator his name is william jones was a uh was a was it was a jurist and he was and he was posted in and he was posted in kolkata and his and his understanding of the language wasn't quite good enough to really to really write a good um to really write a good account of what he was of what he was reading like he was able to kind of translate the words, but bringing it into english had a kind of had like not a dissimilar process of what do I want it to say, okay, so this is what it says, and I think that that's a sort of what is behind what is behind the kind of the the kind of the coming up with the fake quotes like the the text doesn't say what you want it to, so you just so you you make up you make up a different one you make up a different one in your head who has nothing to do who has nothing to do with the text who has much more to do with your personal conception of the figure and I think I think Baldwin's a really good example of this, but it's not it's not just Baldwin. It's all famous or well known people have these false quotes rapidly uh, misattributed to them. Uh, the the one that I'm that I'm that I'm thinking of is the uh, if you don't if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Allegedly by Marilyn Monroe, not by Marilyn Monroe at all. It's a uh, it's Lady Gaga who said that, uh, <laughs> and which I, I would, which is beautiful.
2: Yeah, well, at least I guess it was another another celebrity, but <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> saying, no. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there was a, a couple of years ago. It was very funny. uh Ivanka Trump shared a Rumi quote on social media, mm. and the quote was, "Out behind." Feelings of, uh, out behind ideas of wrongdoing and right doing. there's a field, you can meet me there. It's very commonly yeah. called quote, roomy quote. It's actually not what the quote says. It actually is sort of like a riff on a real quote, but the actual quote says, out behind feelings of, uh, or ideas of, I think, Islam and kufr, which is disbelief in Islam, there's a, a place and you can meet me. And it's kind of not really the same thing because it was very, like, very religiously coded. but the popularization of it, uh, you know, it takes that aspect out of it. And it kind of says that, well, you know, you can do it wherever you want and nothing means anything. And then, you know, we'll have to meet on that, those terms. That's actually what he meant. But it's interesting she, you know, divines meaning from it, which I guess is relevant to her circumstances, even though it's kind of ironic for many different ways. But, you know, I think that it's interesting. Like uh, you mentioned, there was this movement to translate Rumi all many years ago. I think it's not a bad movement. It's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. And people... This is a oh, backlash absolutely. to a uh, perceived uh, Orientalism as a as a uh, discipline or as a bias uh, towards this. When a lot of the Orientalists actually had really good intentions and they actually mm. did save things which had been neglected or lost historically. And they aimed sometimes imperfectly, but to the best of their ability to bring what they saw as these traditions, which are useful to the people that they belong to, but also the rest of the world, to light. It's just that, you know, sometimes that effort can, you know, go off track or there can yeah. be, you know, ways in which that meaning is lost. But yeah. I wouldn't throw out always the baby with the bathwater because a lot of them, you know, did mean to do the right thing. And even Coleman Barks, I guess he made a lot of money off this. So maybe that's kind of like also part of it. But, you know, he tried to make, he's a f- the famous, you know, controversial Rumi commentator in the U.S. today. Or Rumi, Rumi translator or popularizer. You know, he tried to make Rumi relevant to people. and. I guess his perception was if it was too Islamic, people wouldn't really get it. So, let's just try to get the whatever meaning could fit out of it that doesn't have that aspect. And people don't like it because, you know, they feel that you know, you're cutting out something which is important to Muslims historically. Or the meaning is wrong and things like that. But, you know, that should just impel other translations to come out which do have those aspects. And those are happening now. They're happening kind of in reaction to the popularity of Rumi. Uh, But trying to give a more accurate picture. And and the thing I mentioned earlier, the Dick Davis translation of Conference of the Birds, which is a very similar Sufi epic poem. Amazing. Incredible. It was very true to the meaning. Came out, I think, in the 80s or 90s. Very true to the meaning. Uh, Incredibly beautiful English. The English was just absolutely fantastic. And, you know, he had to do a lot of work to, to make it such because obviously the original poem was not in English. And you know that does fit. That's orientalism, which is good. You know, study of these traditions and trying to give them meaning. It's never you know exactly one to one, but it's an effort. So you know, I don't want to disparage too much the efforts of uh, people who've uh, tried to you know translate these things or popularize Mm. them because it hasn't always just been for like the Etsy mug. Like that's I guess trying to make money. But you know, some people there are like a lot of people who've tried to do it in a good way, and I think that their efforts will continue to motivate people to try to perfect them more and more and mm. yeah, we're seeing that today
1: oh yeah no, no, I, no i I, i I absolutely agree with you on that front i think that i, I suppose it's just it's part of not like n- like taking care not to uh not to divorce the translators from their context just as much as not divorcing rumi from his context
2: totally absolutely mm.
0: i guess so there was like this one thing i, I wanted to read this quote uh because when Bucks was so, I'm I'm glad that you sort of brought up Coleman Bux because this is sort of where we run. This is sort of where we run into the phenomena right now of like certain quotes that are, as you mentioned, not entirely inaccurate or fabricated. Like they are, you know, at bet, you know, some people might call them like bad translations. But I think a better way of putting it would be more like um, de trans translations. And um, I have like some thoughts on whether about my like why that might be the case. But I when I was reading that New Yorker article that you mentioned, uh, one of the things that I hadn't realized until I read that was that apparently um, the reason why Coleman Burks, like decided to start translating Rumi was because he had a dream. Um, So he says that in the dream he was sleeping on the cliff near a river, a stranger appeared in the circle of the light and said, and said, quote, I love you. Bach said that he had never seen the man before, but he had met him the following year at a Sufi order near Philadelphia. And that man was the order's leader and Bach began to spend his afternoon studying and rephrasing the Victorian translations that um, another translator had given him. And since then he had published more than a dozen Rumi books. Um, and it's like, so the criticism, like leverage onto box is just, is more of like the de-Islamicized component of that. And I wonder whether that, whether there's like a sort of, in, as, as you kind of su- suggest, the conflict is that there are some people who sort of say that that's the intention behind it. i.e., to kind of <clears throat> make Rumi commercial, to make him successful in America requires, um, Rumi to like, kind of be taken away from. The Islamic context of what the masnavi and the other sort of and his other poems are, um, into this sort of like more universalist figure, where these kind of quotes removed from Islam can kind of then appeal to everything and anyone in any situation, and thus making it the perfect kind of content fodder. it. The other part might be, and this is sort of where I go back to: well, okay, how should these poems, how should this literature be read? Um, because it's not to sort of say that like it's just sort of um, Islamic poetry that has kind of the Islam, you know, that is kind of like extracted and can be decontextualized. Like Quran quotes are used for those reasons all the time, right? Like Hadith quotes are used over, you know, in in that way all the time. It's like the and the criticism leveraged onto people who do that is that like, well, you've stripped it of context and you've stripped it of um, its actual sort of intentional meaning. And I wondered whether you could talk a bit about, or whether you could, uh, whether you could sort of expand more, partly on just like, well, okay, how should these poems? how, how were these poems like to be read? Because as you mentioned, like the masnavi, which currently at least like there are translations that go into like five or six books, but these are very long poems and are they supposed to be read in like in a very, in a particular way? Or is the idea that like parts of these poems can be extracted and then sort of reflected upon, um, can be sort of recited in and of themselves. Is that sort of a kind of normal approach. I, I don't know. Does that, does that make any sense? I guess it's sort of like, at what point does it become decontextualization? And at what point is it, is this just like, no, these are writings that are supposed to sort of speak to the human spirit, like like they are supposed to sort of ignite a human spirit. Um, and like the reason why they are so popular is because there is some sort of like humanistic message in that.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that they can be enjoyed on multiple levels because they're very, you know, aesthetically pleasing, even in the original Persian, especially, uh, and, and also in English and sometimes too. Uh, so, you know, they're like Iranian singers, for instance, who just sing in, they sing Rumi poems and, you know, they set this music. Uh, Muhammad Shajarian was a very famous popularizer of Rumi in the modern context, just one of many who would sing Rumi poems. And, you know, people, I don't think everyone was looking at them as a religious thing. And, you know, honestly, in Iran, the government, which is like a very extreme uh, theocratic government, it doesn't really like Rumi. Like they don't think Rumi is super Islamic. They are very skeptical and uh, they don't ban Rumi, but this kind of like they're not like popularizing Rumi as the epitome of what Islam is and so forth. Because they have a different view themselves. They've kind of on their own separated from him. And if you ask a lot of people today, you know, Muslim people, they also kind of have a similar, they think Rumi is like, you know, a Western thing, actually, that's got a very common perception or they think it's like a very un- inauthentic uh, version of whatever the religion is, if they even consider part of it at all at this point. So, kind of the, the whole idea of universalizing is also a byproduct of people kind of abandoning that view in the first place. And the universalization of him by translators and so forth also accentuated peoples who are theoretically also Muslim, their distance from this thing, which now they don't see as blind to them. They don't even know the, the context of it anymore. So, I think that, you know, in that light, you know, people are making songs out of it and they're enjoying it. They're enjoying just the beauty of the words and the rhyme and, you know, the exoteric meaning. And I don't think it's blameworthy or wrong. It's certainly better than the whole thing just being ignored or being mm. forgotten at all. It's just that uh, you know, I think that we live in a very, you know, unprecedented time and we don't even know how people used to think in the past. Like it's the past is such a foreign country that I couldn't it's hard to even explain what this means to somebody, you know, without like what does an esoteric meaning mean of anything, of a poem or a book or something? Is that a thing which is real? Is that a thing which makes any sense? Is that like just superstition or is it just you fooling yourself brainwashing yourself it's a very common uh perception of people not just in this context in many contexts so the idea even this has any meaning other than what's being said is like a mind-blowing idea to people but that's actually what the whole idea behind was it uh, behind it was and you know i don't really even have language to describe it it's like saying it's a magic book or something a magic poem that you should be able to understand a different meaning from it. That's like the closest vulgar approximation you can get. Mm. And that's, that's what Rumi. It's many, many spiritual and religious texts from many different traditions around the world. That was the idea behind it. Like Buddhism, for instance, popular modern Buddhism, it's so different from, you know, the actual Buddhist philosophy in many cases, which is very rigorous mm. and very painful and very, you know, mind-blowing and foreign in many ways. You can still access it. It's just that you have to do a lot. It's been kind of turned into like a way of like, yeah, chilling out or relaxing, you know, with these practices of breathing techniques, box breathing or something like that. And then you're you're doing Buddhism. It's not really what it is. You can still enjoy it in that terms, on those terms, but you're kind of making it something else that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like a long-winded way of saying that I think it's fine to enjoy Rumi in different ways. I think it's kind of even, I guess, okay to enjoy riffs on Rumi that are not necessarily even maybe what he said. It's just that the actual... You know, you should recognize the actual riches of it or the actual meaning of it is something which is separate and it's accessible, but you'd have to do a lot of work to get at it. And I think when you recognize that, you see that there's a lot of things that all of us don't really know about the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our understanding is really quite superficial. And It's kind of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, you want to go to the like a buffet with international food, but then it's all, you know, Americanized or Britishized. And, you know, it's palatable for that reason you can yeah well i have chinese food and i have arab food and stuff but it's all kind of like you know cooked the same way and is it really chinese food or is it arab food or is it like the with the depth you're getting at it maybe not maybe that's fine but just know that there's also something you can go deeper beyond that and then
1: mm. you know. I, sp- I suppose there's a difference between inevitable errors creeping in because of because of like even like like disregarding the the kind of the universalism of the sentiment but because of the of the different of the language barrier and the historical barrier and the and the and the cultural barrier so inevitably errors are going to are uh, going to creep in and that's not necessarily a sign of um bad intentions it's just a sign of kind of um of clumsiness and like you say of uh, of of consuming and engaging on a number of different levels and then you have uh just thinking of another, just another, another, another sort of famous tra- sort of translation, translation issue from kind of a completely different, different part of the world and different part of, different part of history, which was that um, the Victorian uh, translations of Sappho deliberately took out all romantic and sexual references to Sappho's sexuality and recast Sappho as a, as a schoolteacher. Which is which is quite which is quite interesting like it's in, in its own right like the study of translating Sappho is like as interesting as like studying Sappho and that was a and that was a deliberate thing that uh, that the translators did and that was a deliberate thing in order to um in order to undermine um, excuse me in order to undermine what uh what the poetry said but that to me feels quite different from well this isn't Quite what is what is meant by the text because of uh, a, a, a sort of con- a, either a contextual or a kind of language a sort of language misunderstanding
2: thats that's really interesting and you know when it's done specifically to shape people's views in the present day then it could be something which uh pernicious but it could be problematic or could be troubling but yeah that's it's it's interesting because obviously you know, if you look at uh, a lot of Rumi poetry, it seems to have sexual allusions to it, too. Mm. And it could be interpreted that way and often is uh, in a contemporary way. But, you know, it's just that there's a couple of things like people's understandings of what their, their mores were very different at the time it was written. That's one thing. But also, you know, if you read the whole thing in context, it's usually not that meaning or it's clearly... You know, referring something else, and it uses elusive metaphor and language as a means of pointing to something which is very different or not in the world, or very esoteric, and so forth. Uh, but it's that stuff which makes people uncomfortable if they're conservative, uh, according to our terms today. They will like balk at this, or they'll think it's something weird about it. Mm. Or if they're very liberal, they may like it because they think it's meaning something else. What it means, anyways. But really, it's just like everyone bringing their own interpretation to it, or. You're not really understanding the context, and using it as part of a contemporary cultural conflict or contemporary cultural, you know, reform or transformation. So that's interesting. Is this things which uh, you know sometimes they're just removed or they're just clipped or changed so that Mm. they could be meaningful in the context that people need it in different ways today?
1: Yeah, and and then if they couldn't, if there was a if there was a bit which was which was basically impossible to uh, to reinterpret in any way other than sexual, they would just not translate that bit into English, but instead they translate that bit into Latin instead, which is quite, which the is a, again, quite a, elegant, quite a fun. So if you social. come across like a kind of 19th, uh, 19th century tra- Sappho translation, you'll just get these like little <laughs> bits of Latin in the middle. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, so there's another thing I've got to go. I've got, I've got, I've got to go and look up. Uh, the, but that, but that, but that is interesting as well in terms of, in terms of kind of interpretation, according to your personal, uh, personal morals your personal politics i mean obviously the the victorian sappho was very much a kind of society wide like well it says here that she's in love with this woman so no 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 that can't no 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 no, no, that can't be right what she means is she is a teacher and that woman is her student so she loves her like she's proud of her for being good school yeah no that's what it says definitely definitely that's what definitely that's what that's what it means um but i know there's a but but sappho's like an interesting example because there's sort of there's 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 no way right there's no way around it like it it's it she may as well write i fancy girls this is what i i that's that's me that's what i'm that's what i'm up to but i know that there is a i know that there is a controversy around uh rumi and his um and his friendship with uh, with Chams the Dervish, which uh, which started in Rumi's like mid to late thirties, I think it was like he was like he was a established scholar by the time by the time they met. And I and I I listened to um to an episode. I think it was an episode of In Our Time about about this and two of the and two of the Rumi scholars didn't quite come to blows but they definitely like had a row like one of them said no 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 you're placing you're placing your own social lens on top on top of this this was not a romantic relationship this was not a sexual relationship this was a this was a mystical friendship and you are pretending that it's something that it wasn't because you want it to be and the other person is going no this is definitely a romantic friendship it can be both there's no reason why it can't be both so so there is so there so there is a kind of uh, a sort of difficulty of, inter- of interpretation, which isn't just about a misunderstanding, and it can be something which could be different things to different people.
2: Yeah, that's a really one of the most interesting parts is friendship with the yeah. Shams Tabrizi. That's also a, why a lot of people, like in Iran, where he originates, is so popular. There, the government, for instance, they're kind of like suspicious of it, or they don't know the disputes about this. I think that it's because you know. The main issue, like I mentioned earlier, mores were so different back then. Like you know, guys don't have friends like that anymore. Like just mm-hmm. friends, like it's not really a thing that you know. that male relationships do not mirror that kind of pattern. And if anyone did have such an such a intimate relationship with a friend who's of the same gender or sex, and is a guy today and writing poetry about them, you would—that's the natural thing to assume they're in a relationship. That's kind of what you think. And there's not really the concept of it today. And back time, back then, you know, there was. You know, we don't have the documentary or correspondent evidence to say one way or another because it's not uh, information that we'd have. But, you know, traditionally, it was not viewed that way with people reading it. They would view it as normal that, you know, two guys could have a friendship like this and really be into each other. But it would be on a different, not a platonic level, you could say. That Mm -hmm. was not a idea which was out of the ordinary or shocking for, you know, many, many centuries of people reading Rumi. But now, given that our morals are very different and norms are very different, it's almost hard to imagine for many people that there wasn't what was going on. It's just a super different thing. And again, we just don't know. We can't say one way or another uh, because, you know, no one, there was no indication left one way or another about that subject. But, you know, it's interesting, like everything, a text changes so much based on the reader and we change so much every generation that inevitably the text meaning will change. And mm. that's why text really is not static in that way. Mm. And you know, Rumi is no different. And uh,
0: mm. yeah,
2: I think that's a kind of reflection of that.
0: I'm conscious about, I, I'm conscious <laughs> that we're almost at the, like towards the end of the episode, but one thing I did want to ask, almost to sort of take it to like posting now, because I think, as I mentioned at the intro, like one of the things that I noticed while like during the very limited time I spend on TikTok uh, is that like the Rumi quotes have now sort of translated over there. Like well, they've sort of like <clears throat> they've sort of reached that point. um and yeah, i was I was sort of curious, as as you sort of mentioned, that, you know, you know, the ways in which like this text is interpreted and the way that this text is understood will kind of is sort of always going to constantly go through changes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. um or it is it is just sort of like the way that things are. and it like Rumi uh, is certainly not like the only kind of poet for whom like this will happen to or this has happened to. But I did wonder whether you had any thoughts about how it sort of translates across, like, you know, how it translates across these types of like online platforms, Um, you know, so like, obviously we sort of talked to, we've talked a little bit about how the kind of, you know, embellished or sort of uh, simplified quotes make for quite, you know, it it, it can sort of, you can make merchandise like pretty quickly with them, the whole, like, you know, the drop shipping elements, the sort of made to purchase things have made that um, process even faster. Um, but I wondered whether you had any thoughts about like, as these quotes sort of make it through to other platforms, like, is this going to like, it, do, you, do you think that this sort of causes, I don't, I don't know if problems is the right word, but, um, if the, if the sort of conflict is between people who, or the issues that people have with these kind of embellished quotes is the fact that Rumi is sort of being decontextualized or sort of like de is like de-Islamized um, in order to sort of like create a character that may have, may or may not have like historically existed. Is this sort of translation onto TikTok and these kind of much faster social platforms kind of accelerating that? Or like, do you kind of see that there will still be this conflict for, uh, I don't know, like trying to assert like the, the authentic Rumi. And mean, the second part of that question would then be like, is it, is there even like a point to sort of fighting for that sort of sense of authenticity or is it just the case that like, you know, that type of Rumi or this sort of of simplified Rumi will always kind of exist and has to sort of be understood in those or like in contemporary terms?
2: You know, I think that the kind of elephant in the room too is that there's all this controversy about the, you know, de islamization of Rumi and the decontextualization of Rumi. A lot of it is because, like, the Muslim uh, communities around the world, they kind of abandoned. Yeah. <laughs> they they kind of, like, if it was being read in mosques and taught that way, there wouldn't be any really dispute and people could understand that way. But they stopped doing that. And in light of that, other people have had to pick it up and try to make it meaningful in a way which fits to them. You know, either the spiritual meaning or the philosophical meaning or just, you know, to make wall art and stuff like that, just for to make money and so forth. And, you know, that's kind of like the context of it. So, is it better that it's completely kept in that way as opposed to being lost to oblivion entirely as it may otherwise have been? You know, maybe it is. Um, and I think maybe there's some, like, you know, effort to reclaim or to rediscover this tradition now. But it's an effort which is equally being done by people who are non-Muslim and Westerners or, or Muslim and so forth. They're kind of like both coming at Rumi in almost equally alien ways now at this point because of... uh you know the the change that that kind of change, so i I think that you know it's easy to be upset about it, and it is kind of sometimes a little bit annoying. I think that it's not bad in any way, and it's just part of the way that you know culture is changing and being uh repackaged or rediscovered, and the internet is a huge part of that too because you know people's way of thinking and thoughts have moved to like a post posting kind of like format and you know, they want the posts which fit and the quatrains of Rumi fit posts really well. The quotes of James Baldwin sometimes fit posts really well. So, you know, let's look for a good post and what's we'll mm-hmm. a good material for posting. And then this is like the way it's structured is very good for that. Uh, but you know, I do hope that people will try to rediscover it and popularize mm-hmm. it away too, because it's very important uh, you know, to just for uh Human beings generally, the meanings are you know, tend to be universal, accessible universally, potentially. Also, specifically mm-hmm. to Muslims, how uh, they practice the religion through our history, yeah. maybe they themselves could rediscover that aspect of it. But, mm. you know, it's interesting. I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to say it. It's like Rumi is very, very powerful, very beautiful poetry. Uh, the meanings behind it are very beautiful. There is a meaning behind it, which, you know, hopeful people will not lose to history. But well, I think that, you know, everything is kind of becoming homogenized in a way. Like everything is becoming like a stoic or a poet a quote or a Ruby quote or a James Baldwin quote. It's becoming its own separate thing, separate from... Like the signifier and the signified have been separated from each other almost at this point. So no, oh, yeah, I think ChatGPT could probably write pretty good Rumi poetry right now. Yeah, there was there
0: was something along those. I, I was looking for it for a, quite a long time. I wasn't able to find it. So if anyone can, but there was someone who did like try to do one of those, like, did Chat GPT write it or was it a Rumi quote? Um, which I thought was very funny. Although I think about it now, I'm just like, well, they were also just like kind of using English translations of those quotes. So like, mm. it's not, it's not, it's not quite, it's not quite there, but you know, I, I appreciated the effort. The other part I wanted to pick up on though, was actually, it's a very, very good point in terms of like, um, what we sort of, you know, how we sort of like view poet, like, or how poet, some poetry is sort of seen. um, And like this sort of idea of like the signifier. And in terms of like, you know, from my own sort of, experience as like a Muslim, um, w- one of the things I have sort of noticed whenever I've gone to mosque and stuff is that there is this kind of effort to try and make historical figures, you know, in my case being like, you know, in Shia Islam, like, you know, the you know, the Khalif Ali and like the sort of imam that comes after that, trying to make them relatable. Um, you know, and so like the stories that like, you know, is, are told, even though these are not, it's not quite the same thing, they will try and kind of like um, in, in the sort of pursuit of trying to make these characters relatable for like a younger generation, um, you know, they will sort of dehistoricize like who these kind of figures, who these Islamic figures were like, that was very, that has always been very much part of like the element of preaching. And I did, and I did wonder like, is this kind of, as, as, you know, for all the sort of complaints about like, kind of trying to sort of make a Rumi, make a sort of like relatable character out of Rumi, or at least in some sections trying to do that, is it really that different to how some kind of, you know, how, like what else is being done to like Islamic characters or Islamic figures, uh, among people in like our communities. I know I wasn't really sure what the answer was, but I thought it was like an interesting thing to sort of reflect on in terms of like, as time yeah. kind of progresses, how do you make these kind of figures? Um, yeah. How, how, how do you sort of like honor these figures? I guess.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that the whole discussion became so much more heated because it's the, obviously this context of the last like thirty years and the war on terror and you know Islamophobia mm. and all these different tensions that this became like a, such a sore, like a sore nerve or like another touchy subject. Whereas you know, there's obviously Western depictions of the Buddha and you know many other figures who are even deeper in historical time in different civilizations. It's not as heated as a subject, but because people felt othered and uh, ignored or misrepresented for Muslim in Western countries for many years, or their idea of Islam was misrepresented in their eyes. Uh, You know, the quote unquote fake Rumi quotes, it seemed like another insult upon injury about this whole thing. Like you're writing us out of history. You're even taking our beloved figures and, you know, putting your own spin on it and kind of like, you know, wearing them as hat. Uh, That I think is like the whole context behind why this became such a, more of a, you know, delicate subject than it may have been in other terms. It's a very huge political context. Mm. So I think that I hope that, you know, I don't know if this is going to happen in our lifetime, but I hope that if there's conflict abates and there's like a more placid environment, then people can like talk about the subject and talk about Rumi and talk about the different versions of how he's viewed different parts of the world and look at it in, you know, a more holistic way or a more, you know, Know a way which doesn't have to have this like you know vitriolic political undercurrent that it mm-hmm. does in many ways, but you know yeah. I just think it's ironic because you know people are mad at people for reading Rumi or making up Rumi quotes in the West. At least they're thinking about Rumi. A lot of people mm-hmm. have totally forgotten about Rumi in other parts of the mm-hmm. world. They don't think about him at all anymore. And if that hadn't been the case, then you wouldn't have this problem. So I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know an important thing to me, and it's what led me to kind of try to rediscover Rumi myself and. We felt I was much enriched for it,
1: mm. and of course, the survival of every, all of these fig, all of these figures are accidents of history as well, and that's something that's worth remembering. And it's also worth remembering that any text has its own has its own life, and that's subject to uh, a sort of reinvestment with meaning and reinvestment with interpretation. And turning uh, turning a quatrain into a post is a sort of another way is another way of uh maintain of maintaining the life of the text as long as it is what was there
0: <laughs> uh, i think that might be a good place sense so uh, amrza thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for uh doing this episode with us and uh yeah uh if people want to follow your work um just just in case uh, they don't remember from the top how can they do that
2: oh uh, yeah you can follow me on twitter at masmhossein at twitter or sorry x what it's called right now but uh <laughs> i'm not gonna call it x let's keep on twitter or the intercepts uh you know I write there and I have a substack as well too which is madamhussain.substack.com which is put random thoughts here and there but uh
0: cool yeah. we'll put we'll put all the links into those show notes um this is the free episode isn't it yeah okay cool uh Thank you for listening to this episode of 10,000 posts. We really appreciate your time listening to it. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast, five bucks a month, lots of bon- really good bonus content. Also helps us to keep running the show and helps us to stay editorially independent, which are things that we uh, very much value. Uh, so yeah, please do consider supporting us if you can do that. Um, and then uh, I think as always, as Bar- like we will have links to medical aid for Palestinians in the show notes as well um but beyond that if you can show up to a protest go please do that that's really important um i think they're still happening every weekend uh but yeah like whatever you can in terms of like raising awareness and uh you know just yeah just keep keep on uh showing up to process if like you aren't doing so already um and then the final thing this show is produced by devon follow them at devon underscore on earth listen to bear podcast which is called kill james bond um not final thing phoebe do you have any plugs sorry about that
1: um yeah yeah no sure uh you can listen uh, uh as you presumably know you can listen to me and milo seinfeld podcast over at masters of our domain you can subscribe to my Substack. um is there anything else that i've got going on at the moment no no i don't think there is no
0: well if there is we can add them <laughs> to the show notes after we after no, no, we do no, no. this there, there, so. was,
1: there was something but it's com- it's completely okay, well, when
0: we remember we'll put that <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes um and yeah until next time we'll catch you later bye
1: bye